0: This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv. The views
1: expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Switzerland. Well, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be bringing you two special editions of The Views Room, where we discuss some of our top predictions and prescriptions for the year ahead. But in the meantime, this week, our European editor Peter Thal Larsen sits down with Liam Proud to talk about how European regulators' cautious lifting of the ban on bank dividends leaves investors in limbo. They also chew over the details of an unusually bold growth strategy from Credit Suisse, which was unveiled this week. Next, our Hong Kongers Robin Mack and Pete Sweeney talk about the financially engineered collapse of China's WeWork-like apartment rental middlemen, Danka. The fiasco has left many young tenants homeless and in debt. And the affair raises an important question. What is it about China's innovation cycle that makes startup booms and busts so extreme? They try to answer that question in this week's edition of The Views Drum. Give a listen.
0: Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Peter Falasen. I'm the EMEA editor of Breaking Views, and I'm uh, joined by Liam Proud, our, uh, our banking expert. Um, and we're talking this week about a number of things that have happened. It's been another busy week uh, for European banks, um, and this time because The regulators have finally given us some long-awaited guidance on what banks can do with dividends. Liam, tell us a bit about what happened.
2: Yeah, so the context here is quite important, which is that back in March, um, listeners may remember, there was a sort of brief period where it felt like, you know, the the pressing question was, is this going to be a financial crisis as well as a health crisis? Um, And that was certainly exercising the, the regulators in Europe. Um, you know, who had memories of having to bail out banks last time, and, you know, banks stopping credit from flowing to the economy and firms when they needed it most. So one of the kind of suite of measures they put in was they said, banks, you cannot pay dividends or buy back shares um, until we say so. And the logic for that was basically capital, um, equity capital is best kept inside banks where it can absorb bad debt and support new loans for um, lockdown hit firms. Now, it was always going to be a temporary thing. It was was a kind of provisional, you know, emergency. We don't know how bad this is going to be. Let's wait for it to play out before you start sending capital out the door. Um, And we've now seen those initial bans lifted in Britain and across the Eurozone um, with the PRA, which is the UK supervisor released its new guidance on Friday and the European Central Bank did the same um this week. Well, I mean do we, do we
0: do we think that banks are out of the over the worst on this? I mean it seems a little bit premature. I mean You've still got a lot of you've still got a lot of lockdowns in various places. You've got a lot of government support schemes that are that are helping people out, um, maybe maybe delaying uh, sort of you know kind of bad loans from coming through. Um, what what makes what makes the regulators think that it's okay to kind of like take the restrictions off at all?
2: It's a very good question, and I totally agree that in terms of actual hard data on, for example, loan defaults, we haven't really seen them come through yet. You still see huge proportions of banks, customers, are, um, you know, with payment deferrals and loan moratoria, for example. Um, So, and you've seen governments pump a huge amount of money into the economy, so you you really haven't seen the full effect of it. What we have seen is the output of when banks put these economic scenarios into their models and say, well, how bad are the defaults going to be on credit cards, on mortgages, X, Y, Z? and the results of those models have been bad but not so bad as to wipe out banks profit this year and nowhere near bad enough to wipe out banks kind of capital buffers the amount of equity equity they have over the minimum levels so the conclusion has been look this isn't this isn't as bad as it could have been um governments have stepped in central banks have stepped in um you know, unemployment hasn't skyrocketed to kind of, you know, 40%. It's it's bad, but it could have been worse. So what we're going to do is you can pay dividends. This is what both the Bank of England and the ECB have said. You can pay dividends, but within these very tight restrictions, um, the ECB restrictions are slightly um, stricter than the Bank of England ones, which basically reflect, reflects the slightly worse state of the Southern European banking system.
0: So, so, so the banks. Okay, so the, the argument is, you can, you can start paying a bit of dividends, but we're going to put in some pretty big guardrails just to make sure that you don't do anything, exactly. do anything too silly. Um,
2: how do the banks feel about that? I think there's a, a a feeling of great ambivalence about this among banks and bank investors. None of the moves, neither the the ECB or the Bank of England, one. Um, have moved banking stocks by the kind of, you know, 10, 20% magnitude that you might imagine when you hear people moan about these policies off record. It's sort of like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to the sector.
0: You haven't what seen... You, so
2: you would think that, the, that removing the restrictions even partially would, would deliver a big boost to share prices? If if, if if you kind of go along with some of the rhetoric when these bans were put in place, maybe. So you haven't seen that, especially the, the ECB one barely moved the market at all. Um, when it came out on Tuesday night. Um, and I think that's because the, the way in which they've lifted these policies basically doesn't allow banks to, to return the levels of cash to shareholders that would make it worthwhile on a kind of risk-reward basis for income-seeking investors to suddenly pile into the sector. So I ran some calculations based on the, the ECBs, for example, there's you know, roughly 2% yield, maybe slightly more for some banks perversely, some of the weaker banks could actually pay higher yields just because of the way the restrictions are calculated. Um, and, and it was roughly 2% in the UK as well. So I think... What, what, just for what would it have been before the pandemic? What kind of yield could you have got from bank stocks before the pandemic? I mean, again, it varies by bank, but, you know, the big stocks that you would buy for yield, just take HSBC and Lloyds, which are just the, seen as these kind of dividend machines, four or 5% would, would would be quite comfortable over the last five years. So, you're getting roughly half the level of yield. Now, there, there are various ways to think about it. You know, the kind of, the risk-free rate has gone down a lot. So, maybe you don't need as high a kind of Reward over the kind of you know base benchmark yield as you used to, perhaps, but I don't think this is really going to make the difference for a kind of generalist portfolio manager who is wondering whether it's time to pile back into bank shares. I don't think this is going to change the story really but Liam, you and I have had had sort of conversations, sort of philosophical conversations
0: about this over the over the past few months because. And, I, and it 's slightly puzzling this whole dividend debate because sort of in theory, if a company generates a load of income and then decides to keep that income rather than paying out as a, it out as a dividend, that shouldn 't really change the value of the company and also, I think you a while ago you ran some numbers which said, well you know if you if you measure if, if you value a company on the basis of its discounted dividends you know dividends in the future discounted back to present value. Then delaying those dividends by one year doesn't really change the value that you would attach to that company today. So, so it kind of makes you think there must be something else going on to 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 affect these share
2: prices so much beyond just not paying dividends. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's definitely been. I think I think we we're, we're on the same page here. The way we've thought about it is, you know, it's at the margin probably unhelpful for the sector because there is a. a class of um, income seeking investors you know portfolio managers who manage funds which have to invest for an income you need some kind of yield and they effectively can't own the shares if it looks like there's not going to be any yield at all which is the case if you can't buy back shares or do dividends. So fine but you know really we, we did this exercise like you said where and and the thing to bear in mind here this is what you'll hear officials say all the time it's not a dividend cancelled it's a dividend delayed. The capital's still there it doesn't isn't isn't vanish. Um, if you basically just delay the dividend by a year, I think if you look at it over a twenty year period off the top of my head, you could get a roughly one percent um, you know discount on the net present value of those future yeah. cash flows, so basically not material at all and And if you look at which bank shares have gone down and which bank shares have gone down by different magnitudes, it actually um correlates very closely with the expectations of their pre-tax profits. So basically what's happened is the whole industry has probably been knocked a little bit by this kind of sentiment idea that, you know, well, maybe the dividends won't be there when we almost want them. Um, but really the kind of the stuff that's causing the relative movements between the different banks, which have been very big, by the way, the thing that's causing those relative movements has, has not really been about dividends. It's been about the prospects of lower interest rates for a very long time. Um, so that's very important to remember, I think.
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely the uh the sort of the bad outlook for banks picking the eurozone. just is, is the idea that it's gonna be Japan and they're not gonna make any money off off lending uh um for the for the foreseeable future. Um just to just to round off, I mean we did have one sort of little bright spot uh in, in European banking this week, which was we had an update from Credit Suisse who who unusually seem to be sounding quite bullish. The new CEO Thomas Gottstein making some some positive noises. What uh, what do you make of those?
2: It's, it's very unusual these days to hear a bank CEO say we're going to hit a certain return on equity target and we're going to do it by you know growing revenues at sort of you know double digit paces. Now it's quite it's quite remarkable really if you think about what's happened to the sector in recent years. You know it's been hit by low rates and now it's being hit by bad debt and and you're basically seeing the same story with with every bank, which was like, you know, we've got this massive bloated cost base. We have to really take an axe to expenses if we're going to get anywhere meeting the kind of shareholder returns that um, that investors expect at the moment. Now, Thomas Gottstein, who's come in at Credit Suisse, he's replaced um, Tijan Tiam, who left under a bit of a, a, a kind of spying scandal. Listeners will probably remember. Um, Thomas Gotstein has said, "We're yeah, we're going to cut costs, um, but we're not going to sort of, you know, keep that that cost base and hand it to shareholders, you know, sort of, we're going to reinvest it and we're going to try and grow our way to our returns targets. So the biggest business at Credit Suisse is the wealth management, kind of international private banking. They want to grow pre-tax profit in wealth management related businesses, uh, but at about a 10% compound annual rate, which is which is very high, obviously. Um, you can kind of you can kind of see how they get there. You know, it looks like wealth in in Asian countries, billionaires' wealth is growing at something like that rate. So if they can take some business of UBS, you know, may, maybe poach through a few relationship managers that are a, a bit annoyed at, at HSBC or whatever, maybe may, maybe they do quite well. Um, but like you said, I think the main point was just it's quite a, quite an unusual tone to hear from a bank CEO in Europe these days. Yes.
0: Well, maybe it it just shows that, you know, as we've learned a lot from this pandemic, you know, it's been it's been it's been much worse for the poor uh, than it has for the rich. Absolutely. Credit Suisse is banking on on that continuing. Um, Liam, as always, uh, that was really uh, illuminating. Uh, Thank you very much for your time. And uh, we will keep watching developments in the banking sector uh, in 2021 and beyond.
2: Thanks, Peter.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Robin Mack, and I'm speaking with Pete Sweeney today here in Hong Kong. And we'll talk about Chinese innovation and creative destruction. So, Pete, you've been following uh, Danke, which is a uh, property rental uh, company that's going into crisis now. Um, It's a really interesting, I guess, business model. Tell us a bit more about the company and sort of what's happening.
4: Well, yeah. So, I mean, this is a kind of a fascinating, only in China sort of story. Um, so, Danka is is a is a property rental middleman. Um, it stands in between uh, owners of property, you know, individual landlords for the most part, and renters. Um, and and it's it's part of a herd of companies, um, you know, that have kind of gone into the space in recent years. Um, they've been trying to ride a property push by President Xi Jinping to improve the supply of rental housing in big Chinese cities um, and lower the average cost of rent. Um, This has been kind of a political problem for Chinese policymakers because there's been so much speculation in Chinese property and because because rental yields are relatively low while interest rates are relatively high in China, um, there is a real shortage of these corporate landlords that you find in developed markets. Um, so if you go into a Chinese city and you're a young, you know, kid trying to start out, save some money to buy a house, maybe um, whatever, and you're you're earning what can be very low salaries for, for you know, recent college graduates, um, you really can't afford to live any place remotely nice. Um, there's even a word for like this group of people. These young kids are going into Beijing and Shanghai. They're called the Ant Tribe. Um, and like some of them will end up living in these things that are literally warehouses full of cages. Um, to save a buck. Um, now, this is not the look um, that Xi Jinping wants. It's it's kind of depressing for the middle class, and it's this kind of result of a, of a, a market distortion that they've been trying to alleviate. Now, you know, these companies like Danke would come in and 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 part of the part of the bigger problem is that um, the reason there's there's not enough apartments on the rental market is because tons of Chinese landlords who bought you know apartments or whatever. You know, second apartments, third apartments, fifth apartments, whatever, refuse to rent them out. Um, so there's like some estimates that like one fifth of all the apartments in China are just sitting there empty, right? They're not rented, they're not doing anything. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Some of it's just a cultural resistance to renting in general. But I mean, there's no property tax, like recurrent property tax. So it's free to leave these things open. Generally, you know, the appreciation in the market has been enough to convince landlords. Um, that that like they don't need the money from rent they'll just they can just flip it and it will sell for a little bit more if nobody's ever lived in it, but I mean most importantly I think is is the weakness of distrust in the legal system you know that if your your tenant you know decides to stop paying rent they'll be hard to evict and vice versa.
3: Okay, anyway, so it so, seems it sounds yeah. like Danka uh, is a bit like a we work uh, middleman so they sort of rent out these housing units, and then they sublease it to, you know, other tenants short term. That seems like a, you know, like you said, it seems like it really does address a lot of these problems within the property market in China. So what exactly has gone wrong?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's so I mean, the same thing that happened with like the the office market, like we're kind of seeing replay here. Um, you know, the WeWorks in China kind of had a rise and fall, um, and something similar is happening here. I mean, the, the problem with this is, um, you know, a commercial landlord owns, uh, you know, their building. Um, you know, there's, a, there's if, if you want to be a commercial landlord in, in the United States, you, you know, or Europe, you, you have to have a lot of, of money to invest. But these middleman companies, I mean, they would just go in and, and sign a contract with a landlord, you know, long term, say like five years. They go and, fi- I mean, if the place was run down, they'd fix it up, whatever, you know, and then flip it out to, to people for, for at a premium in theory. Um, but anybody can do that. Um, so a lot of small people were just kind of like, you know, they have like 30 apartments and they flip them out, put them on Airbnb or something like that. You know, there's just there was there was no barrier to entry regulation wise or other. You could just sign a contract. So, I mean, given that there was policy support, um, tons of people decided that this was going to be the new hot thing. Um, and, and the market entry was quite rapid. So, I mean, as we've seen in these other sectors, you know, the, the, with the WeWork, like, imitators, and also, for example, in, like, bike sharing, um, there's no IP you can defend. There's no way you can defend yourself except for expanding market share and being as big as possible as quickly as possible. And what Danka and some of these peers did was do some very fancy financial engineering, um, you know, in order to, to expand as quickly as possible to crowd people out. Um the irony was that, like by doing this, this 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 rush you had to sign contracts in places like Beijing actually started pushing rents up, which was the opposite of what what the government wanted. But it also kind of blew up financially. and and now you've got this 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 kind of public relations disaster for the government. Um, people are getting evicted. Um, rent they're in debt. Um, and And it's just this big mess
3: right. and And Tanka has sort of, like like you said, they've kind of, Dabbled in these financial engineering practices by sort of taking out loans in their tenant's name, which seems to be, you know, quite an unusual twist to this we work. Yeah, model. I mean,
4: you first noticed this. I mean, why don't you lay it out for me what what you saw that that kind of. <laughs> Got alarmed you, because um, because you wrote about it before I did.
3: Yeah, I mean, I yeah, like you said, it, this is this it's it's a really unusual um, and risky, but it's also quite clever too. I mean, so what Danka would do is they would have the tenants take out sort of these twelve month loans, and the tenants would in their names, and the tenants would use that loan to pay Danka up front, um, and the te- and and the tenants would then subsequently pay back the bank as rent. Um, so Danka would just sort of amass a lot of money very quickly just by signing off leases. Um, so like you said, once I guess, you know, the eviction started happening, um, you know, people couldn't make their rent, um, it's a huge PR disaster, but it's also like, it's quite, you know, a lot of tenants now are on the hook because they're not only homeless, they're also highly indebted. Um, so this is, you know, a really risky thing. And I guess in some ways, a lot of the regulators are, um, you know, really looking into this practice, and rightly so. Um, but but I mean, wants- the question is,
4: why did it take so long for them to look yeah. into it, right? I mean, because we've seen this play before, and that's what bothers me. Um, I mean, it was obvious that these guys were doing, I mean, keeping in mind that Dunka is just blowing up now, but in 2018, two years ago, we already had some of these guys going belly up. Um, like when this local um, don't you finance analysis saw like 70 of these guys had like collapsed. You know, and then you have these individuals with with in debt, you know, homeless. And so the property, we knew there was something coming down the pipe. Not only that, but like in addition to like this kind of financial engineering, a lot of these guys were actually signing leases at a loss. So again, like you know like these these rental bike, these bike rental startups, you know these bike sharing startups were were renting their bicycles at a loss, just hoping to gain gain users. like th- these guys did the same thing with leases. So I mean, it guaranteed that this this credit system they were using was Ponzi scheme-like, right? Because they were losing money on all their contracts.
3: You know, so I, why I, I, I,
4: why did the yeah. government put up
3: with it? Sorry, well, yeah, no, I think that that sort of raises, you know, a really interesting point, uh, which you talk about, sort of about um, creative destruction and, in, in, you know, Chinese innovation, where, you know, over and over again, we've seen sort of these really clever and good ideas actually, um, you know, like there's a, you know there are these really good ideas and then it just kind of overheats and then the government all of a sudden steps in and cracks down and just everyone is you know including investors consumers the company everyone is just kind of you know left hanging um can you talk 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 me through a bit about sort of what's at play here i mean there, it's it seems like a very specific china thing
4: well, it is in some areas, right? I mean, like across China, a lot, of, a lot of you know, Westerners will come through and they'll look at a given sector and be, you know, astonished by the number of competitors, you know, the number of brands. Where, like, in one industry in, in the West, you'll have like seven big leaders. In China, there'll be thirty, forty. Um, but within that trend, you know, there's a couple of other issues. One is that when the Beijing greenlights investment in a given sector, um, you have this kind of, especially a new sector. Um, that is not capital intensive. Um, you have a flood of private sector investment. Um, people are like, okay, I can I can easily get raised capital this way. Keeping in mind that like for most private entrepreneurs, you can't just borrow from a bank. It's kind of hard to get money. But if you could go and say, well, you know, hey, Xi Jinping likes home rental, like you'll get in the door at like a venture capitalist or whatever. Um, you know, even a bank. Um, you know, in, in the case of Danke, they they paired up uh, paired up with WeBank, which I think was backed by Tencent. Um, that helped with a lot of this. Um, so that that policy push naturally overheats things, and we've seen that all over the place. Robotics, I mean, like the silicone chips, um, you know, semiconductors. Um, you know, we may be seeing it in in electric vehicles. Um, but with these little narrow things, like 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 these asset light businesses, are particularly attractive to young startups and private sector because of a couple reasons, which are a little bit more worrisome. For one thing, like Why do people pile into these sectors where they can't defend their IP, um, where they know there's no defense against competition? Well, one of the reasons I think is that these are areas, these new industries are areas where there's no competition from state-owned
2: enterprises,
4: um, which in China are present in a lot of private sectors, you know, where you wouldn't expect them to be like competing in hotels and stuff like that, where where really state-owned strategy has no, no role to play per se. Um, and you've got all these college graduates that are kind of like look at, you know, they're, they struggle to find work, you know, they're educated, um, they're capital poor, you know, but they can very quickly pour into this sort of sector. It, you can even see it on the ground level In like, you know, in Shanghai right now, there's a coffee shop boom where like some streets are just like, you know, have like 20 coffee shops on them. They're all tiny. You know, they're these same sort of kind of young entrepreneurs trying to do something where they don't require much cash up front. But it keeps on happening again and again. Um and, and that's an issue. But the other issue is the government, you know, especially in these areas where regulation is unclear. I mean, like there's a lot of financial risk, Got, got I mean, t- coffee shops, whatever. But like, you know, with bike sharing and especially with this with this down cut, you have like a bunch of bank credit getting involved. Um, you have kind of a financial mess. And that is on Beijing, really. They should not just be sitting back and watching things until like hundreds of companies collapse, and then kind of like let the survivors limp off and and run the market.
3: Yeah, and that's um, that's quite. And, and we've sort of seen that with P2P lending and and especially with uh, fintech group uh, ANTH groups, uh, you know, delayed IPO as well, right? It seems like the regulators do like to sit back and sort of let things get out of hand before they really do just step in and shut everything down.
4: Yeah, you just. I mean, I don't. I can't read their minds. You know, it's <laughs> it's, it's 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 not that they they stand back and kind of watch a bit. In some cases, it's unclear. How they should regulate it. I mean, how are they supposed to regulate the bike sharing apps? You know, that was brand new. I mean, so I understood for a bit. But, you know, if you've waited for there's like 20 market entry and like you've already got this competition, why do you wait for 100 more, you know, 200 more companies to pile in and everything to get really weird before you figure out how to like kind of restrain things? Um, and it's just kind of like this, this, I think it's just this China thing where there, there's this kind of perverse pride in it, you know, like, wow, you know, we innovated and it's just generates headlines and, um, you know, it just looks cool. (laughs) It's just impressive, you know, the scale, and then there's this disaster, but at the end, you know, a couple companies will survive and they'll go on maybe to flourish. And that looks like normal competition, China style. And, uh. You know, who's to say it won't work out in the very long run?
3: Okay. Thanks, Pete. We'll, uh, we'll be watching out for the next coffee boom and bust in China then.
2: Yes, we will. <laughs> thanks, Robin.
1: That's our show for this week. Hats off to our producer, Freddie Joiner, in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at Breakingviews.com, And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. Stay healthy.